welcome to this Australian Farm Institute podcast. I'm Richard Heath, Executive Director of the AFI, an independent institute leading farm policy discussions for agriculture. Today, we're joined by the authors of a discussion paper the AFI has published on the rising opportunity cost of water for a chat on the impacts of this for the southern Murray-Darling Basin. I'm here today with Andrew Baum and Lee Vile, and we've got a great opportunity to discuss a really interesting paper that Andrew and Lee have put together uh, talking about some of the implications of uh, the water markets that now uh, exist right throughout Australia, but particularly in their interest in the um, Murray-Darling Basin and particularly the southern part of the Murray-Darling Basin. Andrew, do you want to just introduce yourself and why you're interested in this particular topic? Thanks, Richard. Yeah, my name's Andrew Baum. Uh, I'm currently uh, an agricultural consultant. I specialise in providing advice to family farming irrigators about managing their water availability and price risk, uh, but with a business focus now, but previously uh, a policy background. So I worked for the Rice Growers Association for six years and prior to that as a policy researcher in the Senate. So I'm very interested in the mechanics of public policy and generating good outcomes for the communities that they are directed towards. Great. Thanks, Andrew. And Lee, if you want to introduce yourself, and perhaps if you could just explain a little bit about what the paper talks about. I mean, the full paper is available for download from the website, and we encourage everyone that's listening to, to have a look at it. There's a lot of really interesting detail in there. But if you could just give us a high-level overview before we start to getting into a discussion about it. Thank you, Richard. My name is Lee Vile. I guess primarily I have been an irrigated farmer, primarily a uh, rice grower in southern New South Wales since the early 1990s and now I'm also a uh, director of Sunrise. So in a sense I've lived the vast bulk of water reform having arrived home in 1993 and here we sit in 2021. So we've seen quite a journey in that time. So the paper is centred around what we call the rising opportunity cost of water. I'll touch on what opportunity cost means a little bit later, but as a consequence, it's a logical consequence of water reform, land and water being separated quite some time ago and being much more tradable. But as a consequence, the opportunity cost of water now represents quite a large proportion of the gross margin of broadacre irrigation activities, leaving not a whole heap left for land, labour, and capital. And by definition, that represents pressure for further adjustment, for further change. And the paper goes a little into what that might mean. So look, let's get a little bit further into just what that opportunity cost is and explaining the concept of opportunity cost, because I think a lot of people out there probably wouldn't be fully conversant with, with what that means in terms of the impact on a farm business. Okay, Richard, I'll, I'll take the opportunity. Opportunity cost is probably one of the top two or three economics principles out there. And it's basically the opportunity cost is the value of something put to another use. It's generally applied to things that are with a, with a limited or even finite supply. And importantly, it's not necessarily the cash cost. Um, it's the value of something put to another use. I'll use three examples to put a little bit of life into it. Firstly is the opportunity cost of time. Each day as you go to work, there's actually a cost to going to work because you could be using that time in another way. You could be using it 
in different work. So you could consider the value of that other work, which is a monetary value that can be quantified, but it could also be that you could have been using that time in recreation, in family time, and even in sleep. And those have non-dollar values, but still significant values. So that's the opportunity cost of going to work each day. At its extreme, the modern phenomenon of fear of missing out is actually a consequence of considering the opportunity cost of time too much. You're forever thinking about what else you could be doing. Let's apply opportunity cost to capital, the access and the use of capital. If you can access more capital, the opportunity cost is basically the interest rate, which as we know is quite low at the moment. But in the real world, most of us are still limited in the amount of capital we can access. So hence, the opportunity cost of capital is the value of the capital put to another use or put to put a little bit of life into it. It um, aligns quite closely with advice my grandfather gave me for financial success, and that was never buy a boat because the money you used to buy a boat could have been used to invest in assets that go up in value rather than down. And finally, let's come to water. The opportunity cost of water is the value that it has in another use, either within your own business or in someone else's business. As an irrigator in the Southern Murray-Darling Basin, the cash cost of water for me is about $20 a megalitre plus the pumping cost. But the opportunity cost is the value of that water to someone else, which is now the value on the temporary market, which we might say as say $150 a megalitre. So it's not the cash cost, but it, it is the value of it to someone else. And when I'm thinking about using the water, I need to be thinking about that in terms of what I can do with the water. So hopefully with those three examples, we've given a little bit of life into what opportunity cost means and how we might use it when we're thinking of allocating a limited or finite resource to different activities. At the time that the modern water markets were established, and water was essentially separated from land in the ability for it to be traded. Part of the, I guess, the, the, the intent of that legislation was for the opportunity cost of that water to be more reflected in terms of how that water was purposed and, and where it went and providing more signal for it to go to the highest value that it could be applied to. Do you think that at the time that those changes were made, that it was anticipated that there would be as much movement of water as we've seen now and capturing of that opportunity cost. And perhaps I might go to Andrew for this one. Yeah, thanks, Richard. Look, I think this has been a really incremental process. There wasn't one decision where it was determined that all of a sudden, you know, water was going to be separated from land and, and made tradable. So these decisions to trade water for its most efficient use, uh, in inverted commas, goes back to the late 70s when people in the Murrumbidgee were trading water with their neighbours. And it's been an incremental reform process ever since. It was initially as simple as, you know, there is somebody else that wants this water more than I do and values it more highly than I do, and there's an overall benefit for everybody for that water to move from one person's ownership or, or right to use to another person's. And since that time, there have been a series of incremental reforms uh, that have progressively freed up the capacity for the ownership and use of water to change hands. You know, it started in the 90s in a serious way as part of a broader microeconomic reform 
across both agriculture and other sec- sectors of the community through competition policy, you know, then going into the National Water Initiative, where it was to underpin the reallocation of water to the environment by providing a mechanism whereby governments weren't simply coming in and acquiring a property right or compulsorily acquiring a property right. It allowed a compensatory mechanism to apply to that policy objective. So then you had willing sellers and and markets provided that capacity. And all through, there's been a view of governments that a scarce resource like water should be allocated to its best use, particularly in the context of a very volatile climate and volatile supply. And the ability to withstand drought or buffer the effects of drought by ensuring that the resource at that time is used for those who want and need it the most and value it most highly has underpinned that policy rationale. You talked there about the desire for water to go to its best use or, you know, in economic language, most efficient use. I guess some of the concern around the way that that has transpired and and what has actually happened is that water has certainly moved away from established industries to new industries because there's a more efficient use of water. And, you know, the understanding of whether that is actually good for communities, good for the country, and, and possibly those things are two different things and whether that is achieving that result or not. Again, you know, do you think that there was an understanding of, of how much that would happen as these incremental changes have been made? I mean, you talk in the title of your paper about creative destruction, and there has been quite a bit of that going on. You know, there's criticism that some industries have been destroyed while others have been created. That's part of the process. The extent of that process, do you think that was anticipated as much as we've seen? No, I don't. And, and for, the, for the benefits of, of ensuring that a scarce resource like water does find a home with those who value it most highly, it's narrow to an extent because it considers the transaction that occurs effectively between different irrigators. But the externalities, I think, may have been underestimated. Some of those are downstream industry effects, but there also have been some environmental effects of, of having water moved to areas where it previously wasn't used and in higher volume. So certainly there was a potentially a lack of foresight and understanding of how things would play out. I don't think, you know, you can be too critical of policymakers for failing to have a crystal ball, but I think there was possibly a too narrow a focus at the time on relying simply on the water use and it's, in inverted commas, efficient use, being a greater part of the picture than it actually is. And, and I'm sort of happy to hand over to Lee here on how creative destruction sort of fits into that discussion. I was just going to touch on what Ross Kingwell said when he was reviewing the document there at AFI. He was sort of highlighting that it touches on two important welfare economics principles. Firstly, that given the establishment of competition, that it will find a socially optimum situation naturally. The second principle is that a social optimum is not necessarily found and then you seek redistribution of both income and wealth to seek a social optimum after the competitive conditions. Back to the issue of creative destruction, I mean it was popularised by Joseph Schumpeter in the 1940s, but to give it a little bit more life like like we have to um, opportunity cost, we all know the phrase what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, the whole concept of creative destruction is you need to get to a situation where you're threatened with being killed to become stronger. So you need competition to 
unleash the powers of innovation, of investment, of reform to get to a more optimal economic result aside from distribution issues. So I guess to come full, full circle, there has been a creative element to the destruction so far in that there have been opportunities, which we'll probably touch on shortly, created even for broadacre irrigators with the change that happened, that's happened. But perhaps the speed of it and the, and the magnitude of, of movements of entitlements and temporary transfers probably wasn't envisaged and it's testing the limits of river function it's testing the limits of whole regions and societies that are going through the destruction process. I, I doubt the fathers of the reform process would have seen it come this far, and particularly the dist- distribution issues of income and wealth that have come as a consequence. I might, I might leave it at that. Just getting into some of those distribution issues and some of the, the, the actual changes that we've seen in terms of industry restructure and, and new industries growing again and so on. Do you think we actually know enough about how that's happening in terms of labour redistribution? And I mean, you talked about wealth and, and inequality and so on. Do we have a, a, a good enough picture to really understand how those differences are evolving as a result of these water markets. I mean, we're making assumptions, I guess is what I'm saying, because some industries are very visibly being impacted in a negative way and there's loss of labour. But the flip side of that is that other industries are growing and there's new labour being put into these other industries. Do we understand enough to know that there's a net negative impact of all of that or is it just about redistribution? I doubt we do know. We can offer offer anecdotal evidence that we can see. I suspect that with the changes that have happened so far, we've probably seen a decline in what we might call the traditional family-based autonomous labour, an increase in corporatised employed labour, both full-time employment opportunities and also um, contracted labour. I sit here in Swan Hill and in the last 10 to 15 years, the, the presence of various Asian cultures has increased substantially. And a, and a big reason for that is they, they provide the backbone to a lot of the contracted labour requirements to the near, nearby plantations, both new ones and expanding existing ones. That's an anecdote. I, I don't know that I can offer firm evidence as to what's happened, but you make a good point. There's, there's labour opportunities that have been lost, but there's labour opportunities that have been gained within existing industries, within new industries. Do you, do you have any thoughts, Andrew? Yeah, I think it, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, without sort of beating around the bush about which industries are going well and not, I mean, it's clear that nut trees are going in and the presence of dairy and, and rice has declined. Horticultural industries are characterised by being quite labour-heavy on the farm, and in the case of nuts, lighter on in the downstream manufacturing process. And in rice and dairy, you did have a lot, and you still do, have a lot of jobs tied up with that value-add manufacturing process within the communities in which those products were grown. So it's been an unfortunate circumstance that those two industries in particular have found it the most difficult to deal with the, the opportunity cost of water changes that have occurred from the reform process. 
and it's had a significant effect on the places where where those industries, you know, particularly places like Daniliquin and Tatura and Shepparton and northwest Victoria. It's really had a significant localised impact in those areas. And that gets to the discussion about government's role in either, A, focusing on maximising overall benefit across the basin, or B, intervening to sort of spread both the negative and positive effects across the communities and, and look at communities like Daniliquin, uh, like Shepparton, that have borne a disproportionate brunt of this. And it's a, it's a really difficult balancing act because once you unleash that genie of, of allowing the market to decide, you do actually create real opportunities, real jobs in those places that have progressed and then to turn around afterwards and say, ah, well, actually, we, you know, we need to level the playing field a little bit. It's a very difficult policy decision, but it's, it's one that at this stage of the reform process, I think it's probably worth revisiting and having an honest conversation about whether we need to do that or whether we are continuing on the same track and um, we support those communities in, in other ways. It is a very interesting policy and, and really a, a philosophical question about the role of government. I mean, your paper talks about the decline in the number of farm businesses, particularly the family farming unit. I mean, Andrew, do you think it is the, the government's role to to maintain a number of family farm businesses? Is, is that what the government should be doing in, in considering how the impact of this policy? I'm not a family farmer, so I don't have skin in this game. Perhaps that's a good one for Lee to take on, being in that situation. Richard, I, I am a family farmer, but you, if you've got any sense of history, you realise that there's a distinct goal. Maintaining a certain number of family farmers um, probably doesn't have much legs in the long term because scale, technology, gradual declining terms of trade, etc., have been acting to reduce the number of farmers for, for many, many moons. I, mean, I guess if you try to act against it, you end up with these quite sizable and complex subsidy structures that we have in America. And I'm not suggesting we, we get to that, but certainly in the paper, it was just an observation, there's been a, a, a reasonably sharp decline in the number of farm businesses in a typical broad acre irrigated region. Some of that um, is probably part of the broader ongoing process that you see in dryland agriculture and other, other sectors for businesses seeking scale and hence um, better efficiencies, better profit. But I do suspect that water reform has played a role in reducing the number of farm businesses in broadacre irrigation as a specific. In a similar vein, I guess, and uh, I'll warn you, this is a question without notice, but with the decline in the number of family farms has certainly been a, a focus of some of the angst of the, the impacts on of water markets. The, the other issue that's come up, particularly recently during the prolonged drought, in relation to the declining industries like, like rice, for instance, has been the food security question about, you know, the, highlighting that there's very little rice grown in Australia now when um, there's little water available. Now, the, the, the policy context of that, I guess, is that from, from a technical policy point of view, food security now, when you look at a country's rankings in terms of and compare countries in their food security status, you look at things like access to trade agreements, infrastructure, so on, because it's recognised that food security is related to global supply chains and it's not necessarily that you, about your productive capacity only it's about your country's ability to access food from all sources and so that sort of productive context into food security is doesn't 
so much come into that sort of technical policy lens and in the way that it's thought about. I guess my question is, do you think that's appropriate given the angst that we've seen around that and the un, and, and the concern that we've seen around the, the production of those sorts of crops? Do you, do you think that's a, an appropriate policy lens, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, I'll have a go, Richard. I mean, I, food security is obviously clearly important. I mean, we, we in Australia, we do, though, produce more food than we consume. There are particular products where I think there is, you know, obviously rice, you know, we're not going to have domestically grown rice on the shelves for a short period of time. I think, unfortunately, though, food security is often used as a Trojan horse for getting policy outcomes that people want for other reasons, for their own reasons. And, and I don't particularly like that use of food security to win a, a policy discussion that, that could be conducted on its merits in other ways. I think if you were to intervene for one industry and say, okay, we're going to quarantine X amount of water to grow this food because we've got a food security issue here. You know, what then happens when the tomato sector puts up its hand and say, well, hang on, we're importing Italian tomatoes here. We need to be growing Australian tomatoes. And then the stone fruit sector puts up their hand and says, well, we don't want to see California peaches. We want to see Australian peaches on the shelf. And then you've got a situation where, you know, you start getting real, not minor government intervention in the market, but enormous levels of government intervention in the market, determining what people can grow when, when they're entitled to that support, when they're not. And then that just reduces the confidence of everybody to be able to make decisions about what will and won't be available for productive use under different climatic scenarios, which is where we actually need to be to improve this situation is to have irrigators actually making strategic, well-informed decisions about how they're managing their supply and price risk. And to have you know, governments effectively quarantining water for particular uses in a very blunt way, I don't think would be a very sensible approach. And I apologise to the rice industry, which I love dearly for, for saying that, but I, I think it has implications that we don't necessarily want to see. Well, it's not just rice. I mean, we, we saw the um, last in the drought, the uh, water diverted to growing hay, for instance, which was a pretty interesting um, intervention, I think. What I would offer, Richard, I'd probably sure. have to respond a little. Just outside of a specific um, vested interest sense, food security is not a problem until it is. Mm. And not long ago, looked at a good paper by Svee Hoffman of the CSIRO looking at you know, potential yields for cereal farming systems. And we've done a, a lot of adaptation in our, a lot of our farming systems to adapt to what looks like climate change now. But if it continues, and particularly as our population increases, it may come as some surprise to many Australians that we will test the limits of our own self-sufficiency. Now, that self-sufficiency is not food security, but our own, we'll test the limits of our own self-sufficiency on a range of products. It comes as some surprise to the average punter to know that we're now a net importer of dairy. I don't think it's a broader issue. It's gone away. I concede that it's often wheeled in to pursue a particular vested interest. But um, rice, for example, it, it's interesting as you look through most of Southeast, East Asia and even, even South Asia. Food security is often behind some fairly substantial political influence on rice trading policy in the entirety, almost the entirety of the 2008 rice price crisis was created by shutting borders. There was actually enough rice around. So I don't 
discount food security becoming an issue at a certain moment, but it will be a challenge, particularly as we soon to be heading towards a big Australia. At a certain point, government might be faced with, with decisions on food security when for many, many moons it wasn't seen as necessary. So we've covered a fair bit of ground in the discussion so far. We've finished up on food security. We've, we're talking about the decline in the number of, of family farms, some of the issues with the distribution of water. Um, didn't get into too much detail about that, but that's certainly something um, that's been in the public discussion. The lack of understanding about the redistribution of resources and whether that's having a net negative impact or not. It's a whole lot of stuff that's that's going on there. Now we get to sort of do, you know, look, look back with that benefit of hindsight and understanding all, all the implications of the impact of the water markets to now. With that hindsight, if you were designing a, a water market system uh, from scratch now, how would you go about it, do you think, to rectify some of those issues while still you know, acknowledging that we, as much as possible, need to ensure that water is used as efficiently as it can be, given the scarcity of the resource. Who wants to have a go first? I'll open up with a generic comment. Perhaps there's an argument for partial regulation. Um, I'll leave it generic because there's, there's 101 ways to consider that, and I don't really want to get too far into exactly how to do that. But you, you see similar elements of that in industries or, or, or sectors that have been deregulated and then the government has imposed some degree of re-regulation for distributional issues. Not long ago, a, a quantum of gas was reserved for, for Australian domestic use because it looks like, strictly speaking, the most economically efficient outcome for gas is to export the lot. Um, so as a generic suggestion, Maybe some partial regulation of water reform, water free markets, to achieve some redistribution where it's of, of, of income and wealth, where, where it's deemed helpful for society's function and, and benefit. And I'm going to hand over to Andrew for a bit of colour on that. Yeah, I'd probably look at it from a land use planning perspective if you were to, to start again. And I think some of the negative externalities have been associated with water moving large distances to soil types and areas that aren't helpful, either hydrologically trying to get the water there or, you know, the, the problems of, of putting water onto country that's not suitable to get being heavily laden with irrigation water. And, you know, you've seen the Victorian government, I think, more for market reasons than environmental or otherwise intervene with the moratorium on permanent plantings in northwest Victoria. But I think if you were to go back again, you'd probably try and incentivise use in certain locations by applying a land use planning framework in conjunction with some of the water market reforms. And, and that might have had the desired effect of not seeing water travelling excessive distances through choke points where the significant constraints, you know, condensed into particular times of the year where it hadn't previously been like that. Now, that would have required foresight and, you, you know, that's easy to have in hindsight, of course. But I think some land use planning mechanisms may have alleviated some of the externalities that, that we're seeing at the moment. Do you think we actually, that information would have been available, Andrew, or is it the sort of stuff that we're only finding out as we, as we discover the issues? I think when you look at it through the economic lens as we have, 
and you look at these reforms as being driven by economic and resource use imperatives, you know, the resource was water and the policy framework was built around water use. And water isn't just consumed and goes into thin air. I mean, it goes onto soils, it grows particular crops, it gets used in different locations with different effects on different communities. And I, I think, you know, the, the original discussion we had was about the narrowness of focus of that policy reform on water and on irrigator to irrigator transactions with the use of that water. And I think the narrowness of that focus didn't allow as much as it could have done for some of the land use planning that we used to see back in the day, well before I was born, when government said, you know, we want this particular crop grown here and that particular crop grown there. You know, had we been prepared in the 90s to not completely throw out all of the older school economic principles from the 50s and 60s, we, we might have had a hybrid framework that, uh, that might have better suited us for the future. Richard, I, I guess pragmatically too, I guess the most poignant issue coming towards us and towards governments in, with respect to water policy is that static demand is rapidly getting to a point where it will exceed what's available in a dry phase. You can apply as much markets economics to it as you wish, but there won't be enough water to satisfy that static demand in a dry phase, particularly as catchments look to be becoming drier. I suspect some change will have to come on that particular issue alone, if nothing else. So it'll be interesting to see how they grapple with, with that one. So it's a great point, Lee, and, and I do get concerned from time to time when I see discussion about water policy and, uh, you know, looking for more efficiency and things like that, that I don't think often enough the, the, the core or, you know, primary question of how much water is there and how much water is there going to be available into the future in terms of total inflows informing that discussion because the more that we understand that, the more we can understand the speed that we need to think about efficiency gains and, and the, you know, how radical we need to be around understanding allocations and so on. But I think there's a level of complacency around that fundamental question of just how much water is going to be available. Yes, and in, in, in my other life as an international agricultural researcher, I've certainly, after many years, come to appreciate that Australia is a bit special in a couple of ways. One is that our soils are typically not world standard, but two, our particularly the Murray-Darling Basin is exceedingly variable in supply on a world by a world standard. And I suspect we're not really honouring that truth now, and it'll be interesting to see how that truth it will have to be honoured in coming years and, and yes annual broadacre irrigation has a place in a catchment that's exceedingly variable in its supply by a global standard. Well, look I think that's a good place to finish acknowledging the ongoing context of this discussion it's not a discussion that's going to be resolved in the short term I fear it's going to be a feature of the Australian landscape well into the future that variability the sheer fact that water is such a scarce resource in Australia and how we allocate that resource to all the, the places that it needs to go to in a fair and equitable way uh, we've got a lot of challenges uh, about how to do that. Lee? In that sense, it might be helpful to leave with at least one question, and I think Andrew might have another. Yeah. And it's a question we put in the latter paragraphs of our paper is, what do we want of water reform? Clearly, we want efficiency of water use, but what else do we want? Is it just economic surplus, or are we concerned with distributional effects? Andrew, do you 
I think that that sums it up well. It's a, it's a real policy dilemma. And, and Richard, as you say, this issue is not going away. I was reading a snippet from a Royal Commission from the 1880s yesterday, and it had an anecdote of irrigators around Wanganella near Deniliquin running around knocking out their neighbours' damn bank walls because they thought the water wasn't getting to them because it was getting pinched upstream. That's, what, 140 years ago? So uh, I think we'll be talking about it in another 140 years, won't we? Let's hope there's a little bit more resolution to it by then, Andrew, and let's hope, and this is always a bugbear of mine, at least we have some more data about understanding the uh, <laughs> true impact of everything would be a good place to start with. Thanks again to Lee and Andrew for their insights on this complex topic. We encourage you to download the discussion paper from our website, farminstitute.org.au, and get involved in the conversation via Twitter or email. Thanks for listening.